I Hurt is a podcast for all young people who have been wounded in their heart, in their relationship with God, in their body, or in reputation. I Hurt is for those who daily, often silently, cry, I hurt, but feel unheard. You aren't. I Hurt stands on the truth that Jesus Christ loves you and God your Father grieves deeply over what has been done or said to or about you. I Hurt is about God first, then about us. We believe God too cries, I hurt. Not only over the things done to us, but he equally hurts over the things done by us that hurt others and hurt him. Welcome everyone to this episode of I Hurt. I'm here with my normal cohort, co-host, whatever I'm supposed to refer to you as. This is Jody. Hi. Sorry, normally I normally I shout into the mic hi, but we're sharing a mic, so hi. Hi. All right. Um, we had an argument a few minutes ago because we always start with banter, and I was going to start with something serious, but you corrected me saying banter is supposed to be lighthearted. Is that right? So either we call it something else or we have to banter now. Well, okay. Want something funny? Yes. Okay. We have uh, Sarah with us here today, and um, she decided she had a story she wanted to tell about the first time that her and Dave met Brad and Robin. You want to go ahead and say that? Yeah. So uh, my husband and I met Brad and Robin. We were probably in our low 20s, and Brad had been invited to be a speaker at our church, and our pastor did not want to be bothered taking Brad and Robin out to lunch after the service, so he asked Dave and I if we would please take this couple out to lunch. And the rest is history. Uh, 25 years later or something, here we sit. Here Neighbors we sit. now. Yeah. And, and I remember you saying you never thought that would happen, that you'd be no. like two houses down from Brad and Robin no. this many years later. And I was sat in the living room recording a podcast, and it's very cool. So... What's your serious banter then, Brad? Actually, we're in your grandmother's house. Is that right? Yes, this is my grandmother's house. Dave and I, um, when we got married, lived our first four years of marriage in the upstairs of this house. Yes, which is where our bedroom and my office office is is now. now. (laughs) So every once in a while I get a a, a horrific vision of Dave up there in his underwear. (laughs) But... um, but there's little things I found, like a little plastic army figure up there. Some uh, some of your relatives wrote their carved their names in the doors. I think and things that was like I think that was the family that lived here before my really? grandma. Yeah. Oh, okay. They had a whole lot of kids, and there were like eight of them sharing that upstairs as a bedroom. And you know what kids do? They carve their names into the woodwork. Yes. So there's all these little idiosyncrasies, and then all of a sudden, Dave and Sarah will come down here and remind us of some memory about their family here, or the incredible heat upstairs in the summer i don't know how you guys lived up there in the summer i mean it was sweltering when we were up there the first year so it's just there's so many connections between sarah and her husband dave and robin and i and joel and jody um but i remember when we had that initial lunch with you guys we just connected it was just like so natural and i don't think i came down to talk to the youth group when i came down. it was a no it was a sunday morning service that you did so i don't even know how or why I got invited to come to the church to speak. Pastor wanted a Sunday off, but didn't want to take you to lunch. Yeah, yeah. so it was always, but I'm very glad that it worked out that we could have lunch with you guys. All right, well, uh, Joe, do you want to give us our scripture for today? Okay. It's from 1 John 3, 16 to 18. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives For the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Can you explain what brethren means to our teenage listeners? (laughs) Our other people, our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. There we go, our friends. So, Sarah, uh, we've invited you to come on today. And I know this isn't easy for you um, to come on and talk about an incredibly deep hurt that happened in your life. And I don't want to steal any thunder by saying what that was, but can you just in a few minutes 
you know, give us your age and what were the circumstances that uh, were behind that hurt? Uh, a lot happened, so I'll try and summarize. Um, when I was about 10, my grandfather, uh, my mom's dad, uh, was diagnosed with brain cancer and he passed away. And unbeknownst to the rest of the family, because my mother kept it a secret because of what everyone was going through with my grandfather, she also had been diagnosed with a brain tumor. Um, hers was not cancerous, but it was on uh, her brain stem. And so it was fairly inoperable. Um, so over the course of the next four years, she would have a total of about 42 hours of laser surgery. They only ended up getting about 10% of the tumor out over, I think, three different surgeries. Um, but it greatly affected her um, abilities, and each, each surgery she got much worse. So um, at one point she was basically in a coma for about, I, I think it was about five months. Uh, so she was in the hospital that whole time, and uh, I was about 12 when she was diagnosed, probably about 13, 14, somewhere, maybe 14, 15 when she was in the coma. Um, and I had two younger brothers. Um, we were all three of us a year apart, and um, eventually she came home, and we had a hospital bed set up in the living room. So she had a, a trachea. She had a stomach tube to be fed through. Um, she was basically what you would call a vegetable. Um, we communicated. Her voice was really, really rough, very garbled. And so we would, we had like one of those letter boards where you would point the letters out. Um, we had different signs for things that she wanted. Uh, she was continually nauseous. So when I would give her her food through the stomach tube, we would always have to give her flat Coke. So we always had these two liters of Coke sitting out with the caps off. My brothers always wanted to drink them, but nope, that was mom's. Um, so that we'd give her the flat Coke in order to help calm her stomach. It was the only way we could keep any food in her. So, I mean, from the time I'm, say, 13 to 16, I mean, I'm like a full-time nurse. <laughs> um, we did have visiting nurses who would come out, um, but it was only Monday through Friday. Uh, and one would leave at 4, and the other one wouldn't come till 11 o'clock at night. So even though I had school the next day, I'm up till 11. Dad and I would take turns um, staying up with her. On the weekends, um, I could only go to church every other Sunday because every other Saturday was my Saturday night to literally stay up the entire night. Um, I mean, every, when, when a person is a vegetable, you're just doing everything. They're, they're toileting. <laughs> they're, uh, the vomiting was constant. So, you know, I, I would get the sense of when she needed to throw up, and I'd get over with the little basin thing, you know, that the hospital gives you. Um, and so I'm dealing with, with laundry and, and all kinds of stuff. Um, and so that was just uh, a very rough period of time. Um, our church was very supportive, you know, uh, we would get meals and stuff brought to us. Um, I remember the women of the church just really, uh, embracing me and helping to support me, seeing what I was going through. Um, also in the time that she was in the coma for five months, I actually had my period for seven straight months mm. and I didn't want to tell anybody because I saw what my mom was going through in the hospital, and I didn't want to be in the hospital. I didn't want to die that way. Mm. And I I thought I had cancer. I didn't know how cancer worked. I was just kind of, I mean, this was before the days of, like, Google. I mean, <laughs> there was no way to, like, look things up, like, hey, what's wrong with me? And so I, I had no one to talk to. I had nothing, uh, no way to get information. So I really was convinced I was dying. Matter of fact, I would... I was kind of losing my hair a little bit. And so I thought, well, that's what happens when you have cancer. You lose your hair. Um, and I just didn't know. And because I couldn't talk, I just had to keep it in. And um, I got down to 96 pounds. I was five foot four and 96 pounds. <laughs> um, and so the school nurse noticed um, my frailness, my weakness. And all I could eat was ice, which I guess is a sign that you are really, really anemic because your body is like craving iron. So I wasn't eating food. I was only eating ice. And so she ended up finding that out and got me to the doctor and got that straightened out. Um, but that was just a difficult thing to go through when I'm watching my mom basically dying. And I think I'm dying, too. Right. That The fear. Yeah. What do you do 
and but there's no there's nobody to talk to and I can't I had one friend that about on month four of nonstop bleeding I shared with her mm-hmm. um, but other than that there was nobody to know anything to tell me anything different so that's just how I lived was that I was dying to yeah um, and so when I was 16 my mom passed away it was August 6th 1991 so it's been like 32 years almost um, and I remember going to bed that night and I, I lived with this guilt for a long time because she was trying to tell me something and because her speech was so garbled, it was really difficult for me to understand what she was saying. And I remember just, just getting frustrated and she was talking to me and I just walked upstairs to my room and I don't know what she was trying to say to me. And so I always lived, I think that's why goodbyes are super hard for me because I feel like she was maybe trying to say goodbye. This was like 11 o'clock, and she ended up dying at around 4 in the morning. And I'll never know what she was trying to say. And I just, I lost patience, and I was frustrated. And I just, I went to bed um, to wake up at 4.30 in the morning with, um, I heard the nurse go up to my mom, to my dad's bedroom and knock on the door. And I remember her saying, John, Donna has expired. Um remember my dad just sobbing my bedroom was a loft bedroom and so I opened the door and I looked down and I shouldn't have because I saw them zipping up the body bag and so um you know that's stuck in my mind um and of course you go through these strange things you don't know what to do you're 16 and it feels like your whole life has just been this like craziness and people saying how are you guys doing this how are you you know putting one foot in front of the other and it was always just like I don't know like we my mom had this great sense of humor she was so funny the things that we could understand she was just so funny and we would watch Bill's games together and so we were very very poor because my dad was self-employed and so having to take care of my mom he couldn't work and um we didn't have anything and so my mom wanted to celebrate um, and enjoy football games. So I can't remember who I think the nurse. Somebody took, like, shredded newspaper and made her two pom-poms out of shredded newspaper. And so she would get super excited when a Bills game would come on, and she'd be, like, all excited at the kickoff. And then as soon as it kicked off, she would fall asleep for the entire rest of the game. Um, and uh, I really I clung to the Lord during this time, absolutely, um, because I was scared to death honestly. And of course, you're still going through all this teenage stuff. You know, there's girls at school who are like saying something about you and -and so-and-so past so-and-so a note. Just all of that like teenage drama stuff is happening at the same time. And while my mom was mostly bedridden and, and at home, we would occasionally get her out. She was too ill to sit like in a wheelchair, but we would get her, um, I remember we had this like bed thing made out of PVC. It was basically a wheelchair bed. Not a full-size bed, but one that you could, like, wheel around. And so she got to church maybe a handful of times in, like, a four-year period. And I remember her going to one of my brother's football games. And um, we went to a fly-in. My dad was into airplanes for a while. And um, I just remember feeling like we were just stared at everywhere we went because she looked very different you know when you've had brain surgery your head she was on steroids so her neck was all swollen her only half of her face worked um stomach tubes trachea in her neck it was just something traumatizing for people to see so little kids would stare at us and um that's just hard to go through as a teenager because you just feel so weird like why are we weird (laughs) you know well that's a season of life where everyone just wants to be normal yeah. And you didn't have I was anything that. but normal. Yeah. You already don't feel normal as a teenager, right? You already feel like, oh, I'm so awkward. I have acne or I'm, I'm too fat, too thin, whatever it is. Um, so having that added to it was really um, just difficult. Feeling so different. Like, why can't we just be a normal family? Why is this happening to us? Um, Um, but like I said, you know, we had a good support system and we had, um, friends from church coming and praying with us and bringing meals and, um, we get home from school and my dad always had something made, um, for us. Um, after my mom died though, 
um, I think from all the years of my dad just, you know, having to be home and taking care of her and trying to make sure we were okay. Um, when she died, he went through a period of time where he was going out all the time. So I would get home, we would eat dinner, and he would leave. And it was like me and my 15 and 14 year old brother and me trying to clean the house and get them to do their homework and and I felt like I had lost both parents and I don't hold that against my dad I think he was just hurting so bad and the social life and going out um was his way of coping with it you know and I don't think he realized how much it was putting on me and how alone I felt in it um but it was like I I had to sort of parent my mother, and then it was like then dad and mom were gone, and now I'm trying to parent my brothers. And, of course, they were going through such a difficult time. Um, and, and I felt like I was losing them, too, because I felt like they were walking away from God. And, and so I was being very legalistic and trying to, you know, stop listening to country music. It's not godly and stop. And, and I'm like on their cases about everything, but I didn't know what else to do. I was just like fighting to keep everything together. Um, and I, I remember that I really, I turned to football quite a bit. Football became this thing. Um, and it still is. And I think that's why it's still so important to me. I'm this big football fan because in that time period, I, I found an escape in just watching football. It was something that was mindless for me. Um, and like I said, I mean, this is like, you know, the end, the late 80s, early 90s. There wasn't a phone. I We didn't have a DVD player. There wasn't, you know, to talk to a friend. You were stuck with a cord to the wall in the kitchen if you could even fight the phone away from your, from your family. And so that was my, it became my outlet almost in an unhealthy way. So... Your pain isn't just the loss of your mom, really. There's a lot of loss that you had as a teenager, right? I mean... Yeah, nothing was normal. Yeah. I, I I couldn't experience things that other teenagers did. I, I didn't get to go places or do things. I was stuck home a lot, you know? And you felt the obligation or compelled to take on the role, basically, of the housewife and mother of taking care of things raising you know your brothers the best you could so in a sense there's a big chunk of your life that was abnormal that you wouldn't describe as a happy period of your life okay and so that's brought you into life now where all of a sudden you have to interact with your faith and when you think about the time you know after your mom had been passed away for a while and you were maturing a little bit were there any struggles you had in your relationship with God or were you kind of the person that was not necessarily going to verbalize those? Um, I think that I've always from a really young age just had a really strong faith um, in God and in his plan for our pain. Um, I don't remember ever being like angry with God. I think sometimes I wanted to know why and I still don't necessarily know why. I mean, the family talk was, you know, we don't know why God did this, but there's a purpose in it. You know, we're going to be able to minister to other people who have gone through something like this. And, you know, all those things that we Christians say to try and make sense of pain and why bad things happen. Um, and I still, you know, 32 years later, I'm still not sure why it happened, but I don't need to know why. Like, I'm okay with not knowing why. Um, and I remember maybe three days after mom died, I I fell asleep crying, and and I woke up, and I just thought, I, I just wanted to pick up my Bible and just hear something from God. And I opened the Bible, um, and the very first verse that my eyes fell on was, weeping will endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Whoa. And when I woke up, the next morning, you know, and that hit me like of all the verses I could have read in the Bible, like that's what you gave me, God. And so that moment, I really felt like he was with me in it so um, strong, you know, and so I just knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was walking me through it. 
that he had a purpose and a plan for it. Um, and that I didn't need to know what that was. And I could be content in that because he was with me in it. He was he was stepping in and saying, I'm right here. Yeah. I'm right here. I'm yeah. right here. Like the whisper. Like even Dave said in a sermon recently when he was like, he illustrated it like Jesus was grabbing hold of your face. Yes. Being like, like look at me. Look at me. I see you and I'm crying too. Mm-hmm. And we say that nearly every episode because I think we just need to reinforce that like God isn't just distant and leaves people alone. He's like, I'm right. I'm right here and I'm just as heartbroken as you are. And I, because he feels everything we feel, he was feeling that pain. And he, and he also knew it wasn't just your mom died. It was the four years beforehand and the brothers and dad and like, Mm -hmm saying i got you yeah i got you and i like he knew that if you had maybe hadn't have had that moment from him things could have been really different he needed to be like i'm yeah i think it was kind of like this exclamation point he put on it i am here (laughs) you know um so that that just it meant a lot to me and and it caused me to realize that no matter what i was going through that turning to his word was always going to be the answer you're a very determined person, right? Would you describe yourself like that? Yes. Yes, okay. <laughs> you like to have tasks. You like to start them, finish them, and do them well, mm-hmm. okay? Does some of that come out of this hurt? Absolutely. Um, and some of it's been unhealthy, and some of it's been, you know, I've had to work through it, and I'm getting better. I'm not there yet. Um, but part of it was, you know, when you are the woman of the house at 13 years old, um, I felt so responsible for the housework, right? But at the same time, I'm, I'm going to school and I'm a kid, right? And so, and, I, and my brothers are rednecks, okay? My dad, like, I mean, I mean I've got stories of like, I'm doing laundry and I, I pick something up and there's a, there's a skinned squirrel body just laying in the laundry. You know, I mean, I would come home and find like a shot, um, uh, what are the turtles, snapping turtle laying on the front steps, you know, because they would shoot them because we had a pond and they didn't want them in the pond. Um, so, I mean, I'm living with three men who are like totally redneck, right? And so they don't care what the house looks like. But yet we have all this company and people would stop in unannounced all the time because they would come to visit my mother. I mean, it, it was just a constant barrage of company, her family, people from church. And um, I remember just being so mortified, like seeing a car pull up the driveway and you've never seen a 13 year old girl move faster to try and clean a house because somebody's coming. And I just remember feeling so humiliated and so like judged and people were not judging me, but I was feeling this, you know. Um, so judged that I wasn't doing a better job. And so to this day, I am always petrified that somebody is going to show up and my house is not going to be clean. So I, I clean constantly. And, but I have five boys. <laughs> Isn't God good? I had all this experience. You went from three to five. Just, well, six. I mean, if, yeah, you count, if you count Dave, you're <laughs> counting my dad in the three. So we have that's to count right. Dave in. So okay. six, six men in the house. <laughs> Um, and they don't care what the house looks like, but I have this very deep, like this feeling of, I could be dropped in on at any moment. And so everything has to be ready because I want to avoid those feelings of you're not doing a good enough job, you know, failure. It's just failure to me. The word I get when I'm talking to you, I love you. You know, that's why I'm crying too. Um, (laughs) It produces loneliness at times, doesn't it? Yeah. It's just you're trapped in these thought patterns that were ingrained in you from 13 to 16 when no 13 or 16-year-old is equipped to handle that stuff. So one of the things we try, Sarah, to encourage people to do here is that hurt doesn't get over quickly. Grief Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily end quickly. Sometimes you spend long periods of your life trying to process those things, Mm -hmm. you know, and you know, I always look at it, there's two sides of this. When you do something, you do it well, right? And people will praise you because it's done well. But I've talked to you at times where you've done it and people thought it was done well, but you weren't completely satisfied. So there's that almost like an unrelenting standard that was mm-hmm. placed in you from the fact that you assumed. I don't, I don't think people 
placed on you the responsibility for the house. You just assumed that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's really, it's still affecting your life today. It's still affecting the way you think, the way you perceive things. And that also does affect the way that you relate to God, right? Mm Mm-hmm. You know that he loves you. Your name means princess, and I think you look at it that way. But do you struggle at all with that sense of performance and duty as a Christian? Absolutely, um, especially because um, the I went to a Christian school from second grade through graduation, um, and it was the curriculum itself was very um, legalistic, mm-hmm. um, very very performance based. Um, and it's hard to get away from that in education. You know, you got sticker charts, and, you know, obviously if you get a great grade on a test, you get rewarded. And if you don't, you – and so by nature, that's kind of there anyway for children. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, this was this was a, a, a step up from that uh, in legalism and perfectionism. And so I was very, very driven to have, like, the best grades possible, and everything was a competition for me. Um, always felt like – unnoticed or somehow like in sixth place (laughs) in a way and so I fought as hard as I could to be number one at everything and I remember we had the president's physical fitness test I I don't know if they still do that in schools but I was determined that I was going to hold the school record for that no matter what I mean I went home one night with blisters on my my feet were bleeding from trying to do this relay race over and over and over again until I qualified Um, And so I ended up five years in a row of getting that um, president's physical fitness test. Like I was just so driven. Uh, I graduated shortly after I turned 17. Yeah, 16. Yeah, I was 16 when I graduated high school. Um, And part of that was because the school was, you know, you could work at your own pace. And so because I was stuck at home with mom all the time, I would just school, school, school. If it, it was taking care of mom, school, and football, and that's all there was, <laughs> you know? And so I ended up getting done with school so early. Um, part of that was because I wanted to graduate with Dave because I didn't want him going off to college without me, <laughs> meeting some cute young girl. So I graduated early, and uh, we both ended up going to college together for a couple of years. Um, but, yeah, very, very performance-driven and still I am still something that I struggle with that I've gotten better at and I can take some deep breaths and not have everything be perfect. Um, but it's always a struggle. Mm-hmm. And that's the type of thing that lingers in people, I think, for me too. Like it's it, – because it's not always an obvious mentality or mindset. Like some people have things they struggle with and you can see it straight away and you know what it is, but that's one of those things that kind of flies under the radar. Mm-hmm. And if – we're not self-aware or if God hasn't like we're not listening to God or we haven't like it, it just comes across as somebody who's good at everything yeah you don't actually see the the root behind it um I'm interested in then then like maybe like the th- the three years after she passed away what did that look like for you and how did you cope and how did you begin to heal if you did begin to heal and what like yeah just what that journey was like so that was about 16 to 19 So, um, of those three years, two of them, I was in college and working and I do remember starting to, um, have a bit of frustration with like my dad and my brothers, you know, Mm -hmm. getting home from a day of college and then a four hour shift at the uh, department store I worked at and then come home and then be asked to clean up the kitchen that they trashed. And so I would just do it because I was a very obedient child. Mm-hmm. And so I just did what I was told. Um, and so I I definitely had a growing frustration um, with them. And um, my brothers kind of quit going to church. Um, my dad was very sporadic with it at the time. And I remember just determining that I was going to keep in fellowship with believers and there were a lot of women in the church who took over the role of being like a mother to me um and so I think that that saved me yeah I um I made sure I got there I made sure I stayed involved in things um and at 19 years old Dave and I were married and actually asked to take over the youth group at our church 
um, which was a little hard because I had been in that youth group with kids, yeah. and here I am at 19 trying to boss around the 17-year-old that I was just in youth group with. Yep. So that was a little bit tricky. Um, but that period of time, I really feel like the body of Christ saved me. Mm. Um, like I said, I had a super strong faith that the word of God was the absolute truth and obeying God was absolutely essential. And so I had this level of like purity, uh, holiness to my life. Um, but I think in the busyness and the hurt, I could have easily pulled away, uh, like my brothers did. Um, but thanks to those women who took me under their wing, um, and kept me involved, I, I think that was major. Well, there's an interesting dynamic here too, because Dave also lost his mom to a brain tumor as well. What was the time period between those two and... How do you reconcile that? I mean, it, it's just, I don't, I don't even know what word to put with it. Odd, almost. Yeah. Um, they were pretty close together. So my mom died in 1991. Uh, Dave and I got married in 94, and his mother died in 98. I think that's the timeline. Um, so my mother's tumor was not cancerous. She did not battle cancer. It was um, just that it was so hard, the, the tumor and the place where it was. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was strange, you know. It was definitely a bit surreal. Um, like, why this? Like, why is this happening? It's just, it was very bizarre, but yet, you know, we knew that, that God was in it. And, and part of Dave's story with his mom, too, is that um, his dad will tell you that he didn't know if Rose, Dave's mom, truly knew the Lord. Um, and that going through uh, the cancer, he had no doubt that she had a personal relationship with Jesus. Um, and so in her story, it can kind of be like, okay, hey, God might have used that to really draw her to him in a way that she would not have without that happening. And, of course, God's... Um, priority is on eternity right not on the here and now um so yeah it was just it was a tough thing to go through but I felt like I could be there for Dave um you know in a way that he knew I understood yeah because you came in to the marriage grieving mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden he's grieving you know there is a real connection and love if you allow grief to do that Mm -hmm. So the statistics say that if you take a married couple and they've both lost people in tragic ways, the chances of their marriage lasting is pretty slim. Mm. But actually, that is something that cemented your relationship with Dave, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I've one of the things about Sarah that I've known since, you know, we met her when she was in her early 20s and we were sitting at Garfield's restaurant at McKinley Mall and you've always been a person that has been about truth. Truth is important to you. Facts are important to you. You probably have a profit edge to you, right? I think that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons I get along so well with mm -hmm. you is because I love to have fun, and you do too, but we love to have serious conversations and look mm -hmm. at the deeper things, okay? So if you look at the things that you've gone through, it has prepared you in a sense to be involved with hurting people, to deal with the deeper issues of life, you know, that when people talk to you about theology or they talk to you about pain and the presence of God, you can reconcile those things in your life because your testimony is an odd one. It really is, you know, that a girl would just feel the presence of God walk through it, never question it. You know, you talked about what are some of those stupid things that people say at funerals. You never looked at them as stupid. You could actually receive them, right, and say, God did have a purpose in this. Because, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things we've talked about is saying, oh, you know, well, this happened, so God's going to use this so you can tell people. You actually embrace that. Is that right? Well, it's funny that you mention that because the one thing that really stands out um, at my mom's funeral, the wake and the funeral, was everybody coming up to me and saying, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry. And I remember thinking, what did you do? Hmm. Like, I didn't know why they were saying, I'm sorry. Like, you're apologizing for something? You didn't do anything to me. I didn't understand that that was something that you said to somebody when they lost somebody. Um, I didn't know how to take it. 
and I, I didn't understand it probably the entire experience until later when I, I realized, okay, they're just saying that they are sorry with me for what happened. Um, and so I remember, I remember being super overwhelmed, you know, at the, the wake and the funeral and in the week or two after that at just, you know, the outpouring of love and like the cards and the meals and, and people stopping in and calling and, um, and then it was like, it just ended, just ended cold. How many, how many months or weeks after would you say? To me, I mean, it only seemed like a couple weeks of just all this attention. Yeah. And then it was like, you're just left to sit in it. Yeah. Like, you must be okay now because you've had And you're just grief. alone. Yeah. Right? And it's not that everybody abandoned us or anything like that. It's just, I think you need so much support, you know, and, and you get it right away. But you know what? Everybody else's lives move on. They mm-hmm. go back to work. They, they, they live their lives. And you're yeah. just kind of stuck in this new reality. Um, which for us in a way was very, very freeing. When you've spent four years of your life caring at somebody's bedside, wiping them, cleaning up vomit, staying up all night, you know, worrying, how is this going to end? How long is this going to last, right? And when that's over, I remember like my dad and my brothers, we had horses. We, We got more, I think we had one horse at the time couple horses when my mom died and then we got a couple more horses and we would go on horseback rides and uh, we had a friend of my dad's take us to Pennsylvania to go cave exploring or whatever Um, and we started to like do some things and it was very weird and and it was a struggle not to feel guilty like wow like we can do things again like I can go to church on Sunday and I could go out with a friend on Saturday and and it was just this like you could breathe again. It was like this heavy weight was kind of off your chest. Even though there was a weight on you because of the grief, it was like the suffering was over. And I'm sure anybody can relate if you've gone through um, a long-term illness with a loved one, um, that it's just this, wow, what do we do now? (laughs) But then you feel this excitement that you could sort of get back into life, but then that excitement feels guilty at the same time like oh you're glad your mom's gone no and and so it was a really confusing time for sure but it was a good thing yeah and I think one of the things we deal with when we deal with hurting people so much is they have a hard time re-entering life you know what I yeah. mean it yeah. isn't like there's a definitive line where okay I can stop grieving and now re-enter life it's like you had to learn to do that again mm-hmm. there's a great song out there that says tell your heart to beat again Mm-hmm. And that's really kind of what you had to do. All of a sudden, you're not cleaning. You're not mopping up. You know, you're not worried. You're not laying in bed. You're not isolated at home. And all of a sudden, trying to relearn friendships, church, mm-hmm. everything. It was like you had to yeah, start life then. That was really my dad's struggle, too. Like, if you go from being, you know, a family man with a wife and three kids, and that's all your friends. Your friends are also married couples. Mm-hmm. Now he's single. Where does he fit in? You know, it's it's awkward for to just go hang out with your married friends. And, and so you end up in this space of sort of looking for a new social circle, mm-hmm. which is why he was gone most of the time. Yeah, and it's, you know, I don't ever want when we have guests on to make them feel like this is the only hurt that Sarah's been through because that's not true. Mm-hmm. You had a lot of loss. Your husband Dave was on the podcast before this and was telling there's been a lot of death in your family. Last year, there was mm-hmm. very close relatives that died. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember when you got involved in our ministry, you were trying to have a child so desperately, mm-hmm. you were basically told you couldn't, right? Mm-hmm. And how many do you have now? Five. Five. <laughs> but I remember sitting and praying with you guys about that and thinking about that and just watching this this grief and this hurt and this disappointment. because. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering, you know, if the circumstances of your mom's death and caring for her and everything like that actually just um, fostered in you a desire to be a mom and to love and to invest in children. I mean, is that is that connected, do you think? You know, it's funny. I I never was a person who planned out anything in my life. I don't ever remember thinking, oh, this is what I want my wedding to be like and this is where I want to live and this is how many kids I want to have. I never planned anything like that. 
So I don't even remember really having um, this huge desire to like be a mother. I, I don't know why. I just, Dave actually was the one who was more excited about and wanting to have a baby so bad. Um, I think it, you know, we had two miscarriages before we had our first. And I think um, they were hard on me, yes. Um, you know, I, I cried a lot. I wondered if something was wrong with me and, and I would never have a, a baby. I didn't know if it was, you know, you blame yourself when you have a miscarriage. Like, did I lift something too heavy? What, you know, what did I do? Um, why is this happening? Um, and I, I think it did, like, hurt Dave more. So I, I never had this plan of how many kids I wanted. Um, but was a little funny sidebar to this is that, so after we had our third boy, um, Brady, Dave tells me, you know what, when I was a teenager and I felt like I would never have, have kids someday, and I, I wondered if I'd ever find someone and, and have kids, and I felt like God, God told me that someday I would have five boys. I'm like, oh, funny you didn't tell me that when we were dating. Yeah. <laughs> you waited until we already had three boys to tell me that I'm going to be the mother of five boys. Did you think that was going to scare me off or something? Um, and so for the uh, – because we always would find out what we were having. So the sonogram for child number four just kind of knew, like, this is probably going to be a boy, right? Yeah. And then after that, I'm like, I'm done. Four is good. Four is an even number. I'm happy. Dave still has this thing in his head. No, it's, it's five boys. So sure enough, it pregnant again, and we're just absolutely convinced that this is going to be a boy. And I, at this point, just want it to be a boy because our house isn't that big. So yeah. where am I going to stick a girl? So sure <laughs> enough, we end up with five boys. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I think that, you know, growing up with just brothers, and I, I had mostly boy cousins. I had a couple girl cousins, but I never really saw them. And then, you know, when you lose your mom, really, essentially, I lost her at 12. Yeah. Um, I mean, she was there, and like I said, she was funny, and she was sweet. But she couldn't mother me, and communication was very difficult. Um, I definitely think I was prepared to live in a house with six boys Yeah. Um, from all of that. <laughs> um, to close this kind of testimony sharing, we ask everyone the same question. What would you say to – well, you could pick the age, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16-year-old right. girl right now. If, say, yeah. say we go to a youth group on Friday and a girl t shows up and she's in exactly the same position you were in, what would you want her to know now? I would want her to know to trust God in a way that you don't have to nail down an answer or know why anything is happening, um, but just to fall into his arms and allow him to speak to you and to comfort you and also to just simply put one foot in front of the other. Mm. Like, just get through it. You're stronger than you think you are. You know, I, like I said, I remember people just saying, I don't know how you're doing this. I don't know how you're doing this. And I'm thinking, yeah. what? Yeah. yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know why you think I'm so great. I don't know. I always remember feeling that way. Like, why does everybody think I'm this, like, super strong, amazing person and they don't understand how I'm handling this? Like, you just... You get through. You just get through things. I don't know. You just, you know, especially when you have a, a loving family, a relationship mm -hmm. with the Lord. There's almost nothing that can get thrown at you that you can't stand up and walk through it yeah. and know that, like, He's got your hand. Just open His Word, and He will give you peace. He'll give you comfort. He'll give you an answer that will blow your mind. Just yeah. keep pursuing Him, and also to stay in fellowship. And sometimes when we're going through something that's painful, um, that we tend to think nobody knows what I'm going through, mm -hmm. I don't need those people, and and we can kind of just um, tuck into a shell and not open up about it, and just feel like being alone is easier yeah. than having to share my story with people. But by keeping yourself um, linked up with the body of Christ, um, you just there's just so much support there. Yeah. Um, I know you want the mic, but I was going to say something else. <laughs> Fight over it. <laughs> um, well, the the attribute that you Brad planned for today was God is light, and like that is what you were saying about you. You want to the tendency to then retreat and be alone. Well, that's the dark place. Mm. Um, but when God is welcomed into that space, He is light, and the darkness has to 
roughly. Mm-hmm. So is there anything else you wanted to say on that? Well, but the other side of it is too, Sarah, you do understand people's struggles. Mm-hmm. That there's days they just can't believe or they don't feel like they're going to get through, you know, but they do. Mm-hmm. You know, there's this grace of God that he doesn't ask us always to be these radiant, shining believers that are confident and know what's going on all the time. Sometimes it's just help me make it through the day. Yeah. And, and you know, isn't that what faith is? Even though your emotions are messed up, even though you might feel angry at God, even though you don't understand what's going on, um, but you stay true to him, right? I mean, that's what faith is. Right. <laughs> it's getting through those moments where you're doubting him and, and you're upset and nothing makes sense. Um, but you hold on and you still believe that he is truth and that he is light and that someday I will understand why all of this happened. And yeah. I truly trust in that. Yeah, the characteristic for today is that God is light, and you can give a bunch of theological definitions of it, but it basically means that when God is present, there is no darkness. He casts mm-hmm. out darkness wherever he goes. And I had to preach this last Sunday, and I was sitting at Tim Horton's early in the morning, and I was thinking about God is light, and then the sun came up over the, the ridge here, and it was one of those brilliant mm-hmm. suns. It hit me right in the eye. It literally made me turn my head. And then I sat there, and I just noticed how as soon as that sun hit the entire uh, restaurant, so many things changed. Mm-hmm. It clarified everything. You could see everything clearly now, whereas you couldn't two minutes before. It brightened people's moods, you know. Mm-hmm. It just, oh, the sun's out, you know. It's amazing what that does to people. Um, it got warmer, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I noticed the icicles started to melt more, and um I just noticed the whole mood of Tim Hortons changed. And I go, that's what God's light does in our lives. Mm-hmm. You're going through this horrific time, and all of a sudden, he, sh- he shines into it. Maybe he can clarify it a little bit or bring something good into your life to encourage you or just give you a sense that you're loved and cared about that warm feeling. Or just sometimes, every once in a while, in my deepest gloom, God will bring a little something to remind me that he's there, that I'm not cast out into utter darkness. Yes, I'm in darkness, but I'm not in utter darkness. Light has not been just obliterated. All it takes is a little light of God, a word from him, a testimony by somebody, a song, or his just the awareness of his presence. All those things can bring his light mm-hmm. into our lives. Yeah, and even one one last funny little thing. Um just thinking of the light and joy, even in the midst of darkness. Um, you know, like I said, my mom had a great sense of humor. And so uh, at her funeral, we actually buried my mother. We have 15 acres of land, and we, my mother is buried on my dad's property. Um, and so we made this little gravesite area off in the corner of the property, and we had, um, at the time, so the, the funeral procession, like, goes to the house, and everybody's around the grave um, that we dug. And... Uh, we had at the time horses, chickens, dogs. I think we had a crow in a cage. Okay. <laughs> Typical, pet. Typical pet, right? And so we're all gathered around her grave about to like throw the dirt on it. And every animal we have starts going crazy at the same time. The chickens, the horses, the dogs, everything starts making all kinds of noise. Like on cue, all together. It was like a chorus of animals. And so um, we actually buried my mom in bunny slippers. And so we've always choked that because the scriptures say about the dead in Christ will rise first. And so we always joke about seeing those bunny slippers flying up into heaven someday. Um, so we had all these, these fun moments and these moments where it was like God was there with us and right. joyful memories and all those things. So even in something that you think, well, that would be my worst nightmare, Sometimes you get to that nightmare and you realize, I'm okay. Like, there's still joy. Yeah, there's sorrow and it hurts really bad, but there's still joy. There's still memories. There's still the sun comes up the next day, and there's still people who love you and people you love, and and life moves on, and and it's all good because he's good. That's right, and that's what light is. You know, we have a tendency. People don't understand the attributes of God. They think they're like these unknowable principles. It's like all the animals going nuts, and it's just like God saying, they all get to say goodbye to her at the same time, or it's like a chorus. And when you're a grieving person, you know, you were a teenager at the time, 
that's nurturing to you to mm-hmm. say, I am not alone. God is not absent from this situation. Yeah. And I always tell people, if you have stopped hearing from and seeing God, it's probably because you've stopped listening and you stopped looking. There probably have been things of his presence that you haven't recognized. So I just always encourage people, if you're hurt and you're in darkness, look for those little signs of God's presence, mm-hmm. his awareness, and his love for you. Amen. Um, Sarah, at every program, we ask the, the guests to pray for people that um, are in hurt. Maybe not necessarily the same hurt that you've had, but hurt is something that's common to all of mankind. So would you just pray for that? person that's listening out there today maybe has lost a loved one or is dealing with cancer or has lost that person and is in gloom or in despair or is questioning do you just pray with them right now okay yeah father we just thank you for this time that we can talk about things that have hurt us and things we've gone through that no one else can truly understand exactly how it felt but you understand. You were there for every bit of it, um, and that you can uh, relate to us in any suffering that we go through. So right now I pray for that teenager who just feels like, why can't my family look normal? Why can't I be normal? Why is this happening to me? Does anyone understand Does anyone see what's going on inside of me? Can I trust anybody and show them what's going on inside of me? God, where are you? Why don't you care enough to stop this? Father, I just pray that you would right now reach down into that heart, into that mind, and that you would, in some very tangible way, show that person that you are right there with them, that you are their comfort and that you are their answer and that you are their light, that no matter what circumstance they may face, that your light can always be there all around them, that when it seems like no one else cares or understands, you are right there inside their mind. You're inside their emotions. You know better than they know what's going on. I pray that that would just be a comfort for anyone who's just um, praying and believing for healing. I pray that you would just increase their faith because you are a God who heals. While I've had a lot of loss, I've seen a lot of healing, miraculous healing, amazing healing. And so, Father, I pray that you would just give them a measure of faith to, to keep going one foot in front of the other to just take a deep breath and to know that you are with them. You go before them and behind them, and you are around them. I pray that you would bless them and help them to feel your love today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Sarah. Mm -hmm. See you next time, folks. Mm